It's a huge hesitancy and it's, it happens a lot. Like, I think this is one of the hardest to own of all 27 subtypes um, because nobody wants to be like a baby. You know, no one wants to be someone who's described as throwing a tantrum or being childlike. I mean, I have to say, I was the same way. The first time I heard Claudio Naranjo say that the self-preservation too is childlike, in my mind, I crossed that one off the list. You know, that's not me, I'm not childlike. It took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do as a grown-up, you know, to find a career. I was in school for a really long time because I didn't know. It took me a long time to get to what I wanted to do. It took me an even longer time to be self-sufficient financially. You know, my parents were helping me well into my 30s and even in the beginning of my 40s. And that's humiliating to say, but I had to look at the truth of that and go, wait a minute. You know, I'm still asking mom for money. I mean, that's crazy to think that I'm not childlike. <laughs> Welcome to the Story Enneagram Podcast. I'm Jim Gum, and I'm an Enneagram teacher and coach living in Kansas City. Today, we're going to hear from some self-preservation twos as part of this season's series on the self-preservation subtypes. The Enneagram self-preservation two is called privilege or me first. They're kind, caring, and empathetic. They make connections with people in their circle by leading with their heart. Pride is the passion of the Enneagram type twos. However, this subtype is a countertype. Pride is more masked, hidden, and harder to acknowledge. It does show up in the way they would like others to treat them. How do you feel when all of your best intentions and efforts on others' behalf are not well received? Today, we're going to listen to the stories from Self-Preservation Twos to understand their motivations for helping and getting what they need in life. As you heard B share in the opening, Owning the self-preservation too can be hard because no one wants to be considered childish. And even though the two is most typically called the helper or the giver, as a countertype, their actions may look different than the typical two. Listen to how Kim describes her experience. I don't completely 100% resonate with the other, like a traditional helper, as in like I'm not throwing myself out there and signing up for everything, volunteering for all the things. And yet... I am somebody that is quick to jump in, do dishes, to say, yes, come stay at my place or come and join us for dinner. Um, and yet, that's usually on my terms. It feels like it's a lot of times when it works out for me or when there's going to be a benefit from it. Or I don't fit the traditional box of the helper in overdoing. And so I think with the self-pres, I do have boundaries and I think I'm pretty good at kind of finding what my boundary is. And here was B's experience. And for me, it was getting that, you know, I was more fearful than I thought. I needed more protection than I thought. I was, it, it described why I was so ambivalent about say meeting people's needs when other two say that they like that or that they do it more readily. 
Colleen, on the other hand, does identify with the more typical two experience. I just have always felt it very fulfilling. I tend to always be in some type of service role or like always saying, yes, like, you know, I would be more than happy to um, help you in in certain situations or, or, oh, you want some advice? Yes, I I would be happy to sit and listen and and give you, uh, you know, uh, some advice because I may or may not have (laughs) the answers, but I, I want to listen and I want to just, whatever that person needs at that time, that's what I want to be because that makes me feel uh, feel good about being able to be that for them. The most common question that's asked when I teach is whether a person is born with a certain type or did their circumstances influence their personality. Listen to how the theme of growing up in a broken family played into both Kim and Colleen's experience. Um, well, so my I didn't have a father around at all. Um, and so it was just my mom who was a single parent with four girls. So she was trying to manage everything on her own. I never knew which mom I was going to get. The mom that was engaged and invested or the mom that had to pull away and was absent for a day, days at a time. But the one thing that I kind of figured out early in life is that if I could lessen the stress that she was under in any way, it made a little bit of improvement in the surroundings, the circumstances, my mom's temperament. So as a firstborn, I was managing my younger siblings. I was making sure the house was clean, that I even got a job and started helping pay bills and such so that the stress was less, the thing that connected me to my mom. So she was able to show some uh, approval of that. And so then I kept doing it. And I think that's where that helper need kind of was solidified early on. Just like if I keep doing it, that she'll be happier, I'll be happier, I'll feel like she loves me. And here's Colleen again. I love uh, being helpful to people. Um, I feel like that's been instilled in me since, you know, I was a little girl. Um, I really helped with, you know, my parents, um, especially like, you know, coming from a broken family um, and having a younger brother. I stepped in to a lot of positions where, you know, it was just trying to help uh, manage things and keep everything kind of in, in order. Um, and it just makes you feel good when you see your results of like how it makes the person feel uh, by what you're doing. Self-preservation too has a strong desire to be both pleasing and well-liked. Tuning into others and their needs is a way to get those desires met. Listen to how Kim and Colleen took on the role of the teacher's pet. Oh, Miss Hunter, first grade. Yeah, she loved me. She really, I mean, all my teachers did. <laughs> yes, I do. When you get that instant gratification, you get those gold stars. You like get to get be the line leader because you are helping them out so often. They're like, you. And I remember her talking about, she would just talk to my mom about how it was the best thing ever. So that fills me up, of course. And especially at that time where I was trying to get the attention of my mom. If I can get the attention of anybody who's giving me gold stars and putting me in front of the line, I'm going to thrive off of that. And here's Colleen again. Especially during like my school years, I would definitely say I was teacher's pets. I knew exactly what they wanted, what they needed. Um, I also enjoyed having conversations and I could, you know, just sit and, you know, listen to them or, different things. I mean, a lot of people would, would probably call me mature for 
my age at times, just because of just how I would process conversations or those types of things, which teachers love that. Um, and cause it makes their job easier because it's hard enough as it is. This focus of attention that gets rewarded at a young age translates into adulthood. Here's how B describes her mindset in her current work. But I do, I do have fear, a kind of fearfulness all the time that manifests more as worrying if things are going to go as planned, you know, worrying, what if this happens? What if that happens? We need to make sure that, you know, like when we're doing a retreat, you know, is everyone going to be happy? Is everyone going to get what they need? You know, what if this happens? What if this person doesn't understand this? What if this person takes this wrong? Kim relates a story about how this continued into college and her adult life. In our small group, our facilitator, if you will, is an authoritative, powerful role, if you will. And so I find myself, even in that small group where we're exposing ourselves all the time, where I am trying to like assist this facilitator, who's not asking for help, mind you, but is just to like bring it back when our discussion gets off track or um, give the right answer. Yes, I do. I find myself still doing that. And I can pick that person out in the room. And I think there is this sense of, because they seem like they are of power or of authority, that I can kind of, if I can win their authority, I can kind of relax. Like They'll be in charge. They seem like the in charge person. Finding a want or need for that because that feels like somebody I want to gain their approval because maybe they can then, maybe it's that take care of me. B spoke at the beginning about how the self-preservation too is the hardest subtype to own because nobody wants to be considered childish. I want to be clear that this type is quite capable and accomplished in many ways. The desire to be taken care of is largely hidden and unconscious. Here's how B describes her experience. This first realization of realizing I'm not the most powerful one here. I'm the one who actually is unconsciously asking for protection or needing protection. And some of those things, those things that we think of generically as self-preservation stuff, like knowing how much money you have in your bank account, and, you know, that we have what we have to realize when we're dealing with subtypes is it doesn't mean self-preservation does not mean self-care. Sometimes it means the opposite. Right. And it's self-preservation too. What it means is you're unconsciously not taking care of yourself to leave space for somebody else to come and do it because that's the unconscious wish, right? The unconscious wish is that you're going to take care of me. And here's Kim describing how her self-preservation informs the limitations of her helping after returning home from a trip. Yeah, even just coming back home from this trip. So we just got back from Florida a couple days ago. The planner and the doer of the family, I tend to be the one that gets it all done, sees it through, takes care of the details. And then got home and then there's still so much to do. There's all the things to unpack and get back to work. And um, and so I jumped in, I did all the things and I, I can get to a point where I just almost do so then I cannot do. So almost like give myself that privilege to be off, like work really hard and then be able to justify like, like, okay, I am completely spent. And it was 7.30 at night and I was done and I was ready to go to bed. And I just said, you got it from here, babe. The interesting paradox of the self-preservation too is taking care of others while also wanting to be taken care of. Here's Kim again. 
But something that has come up in my marriage, which has been really interesting, is the the need for wanting him to be the leader and kind of manage and care for and provide. And what's really funny is when I brought that up with Matt before, he's like, I don't think that's really what you want. That's not anything that you're showing here. And it's so true because my outward actions are like, I need to take care of this. I need to do it. I am independent and I don't want to be dependent. (laughs) But in reality, I really, really like have a desperate need for wanting to feel secure with authority. And I've just never had that. I was basically taking care of my little sibling when I was 12 and didn't really have, without having a dad, without having a mom who had the capacity to care for me, kind of just didn't have that authority figure in my life to let me be a child. The self-preservation too moves against the passion of pride. The pride is more inward and less openly expressed. Colleen expresses pride in the confidence of what she's able to offer. I think I have pride in the work that I do, in the way that I serve others, in the way I'm able to relate and listen to others. Um, You can easily just feel like I'm your go-to. I'm that. I'm your person. Um, And even though we would what we state is like, we're, we're, we're very humble. <laughs> I mean, like, we're, and, and I, I know I don't have it all together, but I do know that I would be a great person for you to, you know, if there's something that you need or that you want, Colleen's my go-to person. Like, like I know that she will drop everything and she will, and she will be there. And that can very easily get into, get into pride, which gets me in trouble because when you have a lot of people thinking that, um, and let's say they're all needing something at the exact same time, you dry yourself out because you're trying to meet all these people's needs and then, and you don't have the energy to do that. And here's how Kim describes her experience with pride. We are pretty good at disguising it. Although maybe not because (laughs) early on in my relationship with Matt, you know, the first book he got for me, but it's a book. The title is Humility. <laughs> I think he was trying to get a point across. <laughs> but I do, um, I read that and it actually really resonated. But I think I have, I think a lot of twos, I know I can relate to this, is that we have this false sense of humility. So it's well masked by our pride. Um, I mean, we, it is always underlying. And so mine is, I mean, for sure, I think that it can be a me first and I deserve and I'm doing to get. B shares that pride is tricky. And what's the difference between feeling good about yourself and getting puffed up? Listen to her experience. And then just things like, for instance, uh, becoming a leader, doing group facilitation training, which I think was leaning more on my, my social, my second instinct, and developing that more. I think that helped. Um, and then still a work in progress, sort of owning my power as a thought leader in the Enneagram or as an author and recognizing I have something to say, recognizing that when I work with people, I help them. Now, the tricky part for me is I have big time fear of pride. So it's a, it's a hard thing to discern when am I stepping into my power and owning my strengths and being more confident as an adult versus when am I getting taken away by pride in a way that's just my ego taking me over. 
I think it's, yeah, it's, it remains to be a challenge for me, really. Um, you know, feedback from friends helps, um, you know, asking like, does this feel like I'm getting grandiose or does this feel like just something I need to own and feel good about? One of the consequences of keenly focusing on others' needs is that the two can lose touch with what they are wanting or needing out of life. Colleen understood this as a result of trying to calm the waters at home as a young child. It'd be on me to just make sure everything was just staying um, together. And so I wouldn't be able to really open up my emotions with that. But that felt for me like, oh, I'm helping though by doing that because they're not having to deal with me at, at this time or like with what with my emotions, my feelings. And, um, and as long as like I'm not being a bother, then I'm being helpful. Throughout the years, I will say, like, I think it's gotten better with me being more open about the things that I might be needing at the time. But it took me a while um, to be able to fully state those because I didn't want to rock the boat because, you know, I was I kind of like made myself think I'm fine. Like, it's okay. I don't need these things because I've survived this far. So, you know, as long as like everyone else is doing good, you know, then then I'm doing good because they're they're doing all right. And here's how B describes her experience. I think another fear that I think is not very talked about is a kind of fear or an anxiety related to a kind of insubstantiality. Um, and I think with twos, what that means is, like, I, I when I first got into therapy, I realized I didn't feel like I had a sense of self because my energy and attention was so much going outside me to other people all the time that, you know, I sometimes tell the story, like one of my first experiences of any kind in sort of a, a self-development context was being in a women's group. And one week, the woman, the leader, the therapist who was leading it turned to me and said, what do you need from the group this week? Um, and I look, it was as if I looked inside and there was nothing there. Like I, there was no answer. There was no information. It was sort of like this feeling of existential anxiety. Like there's no there there. It can be hard for a two to not only say what they want, but to know what they want. But they can learn how to value themselves and others in a way that honors both people. Listen to Colleen share about her growth and serving. I will get texts. I will get things all the time like, hey, are you available? Can you help with this? Can you help with this? And as much as my initial reaction is, yes, I just have to hit pause and think through it and be like, okay, is this really what I need to be doing? Like, I know I'm not the only person. Like, there are others. And I, I don't have to always be the one to fulfill this responsibility. Like, I can, and it's okay for me to say no and just to not work or to just attend and to be okay with just being a part of the event or whatever is happening. And I don't have to feel like I have to do something with it. I can just enjoy. Part of the journey of the self-preservation too is realizing that they aren't a kid anymore. They're a grown up. Listen to how this translated into Colleen's ability to break the expectations of her role in her family. Talk about like with my with my dad and stuff. Like there were just some there's some manip manipulation that was sometimes going on, um, and you know that I just didn't appreciate because if I said no to something, there would sometimes be a um, I'm going to make you feel bad for not wanting to do those things. And I actually took the initiative and I had a conversation 
uh, with him and like saying, you know, I don't appreciate that. Like it's, it should be okay for me to be able to say no. It's not in any reflection, you know, about you. It's just like at that time, it's not good for me. And, you know, just know that I still love you. And, but it's okay for me to have, have said that. And what's in, like starting to have more of those open conversations has actually led to us getting along even better, which has really deepened our relationship. I'd like to end with this story from Kim, lest we forget the power of empathy and caring for others. So as a nurse, obviously that fits well into my Enneagram type that I do see a lot of people in life where they're really struggling and always emotionally, physically, but spiritually. And and so one of the things that is powerful, I think, about my type, being able to be expressive with my emotions and empathetic is being able to really be there with them. As much as, you know, the two can be known as doing, serving, and helping, I think one of the more powerful things and the gifts that I do feel like is brought out in the two is that I can be very empathetic and sit with people in whatever they're feeling. And so that, I think, is... Again, one of those superpowers where I realize the more I get to know the Enneagram, that that's not something that everybody can do or do very easily. The question a lot of times is, is the right life path as a nurse to go down? But I'm oftentimes affirmed that the most powerful thing a nurse can do or a mom can do or sometimes a human can do is just sit with somebody in their pain or sit with somebody and, and really empathize and just be able to be and to carry those emotions, if even just for a little while. I imagine if you're like me and you found yourself in a time of need, you'll never forget those who could be present with you, those who could understand and empathize, even for a little while. That's it for this episode of the Story Enneagram podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you or someone you know is a two who needs to know that their needs are as important as others, you've come to the right place. Wouldn't it be great to experience the natural giving and receiving in your everyday relationships? Visit my website at storyenneagram.com. I offer Enneagram team building experiences and training for businesses, schools, and nonprofits. I also offer personal coaching packages for individuals or couples. Drop me a line and let's explore what the Enneagram can do for you. Please subscribe to the Story Enneagram podcast. Share it with your friends and family. And if you're really feeling it, leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. Our music is by Daniel Gum. You can hear his music on Spotify or wherever you get your music. And yes, we do have the same last name. Story Enneagram, where learning your type is just the beginning of a whole new story. Story.